they can't wean him off vasopressors. They can't wean him off the ventilator. They're trying to wake him up and like not keep him sedated because that's not helping him. But when you wake him up, then he is absolutely immanageable. I mean, he's literally like holding onto the bed and like kicking his legs and like writhing, like gonna pull the tube out. But then we're an ICU that tries to not do restraints. How do we not restrain this guy? He's gonna extubate himself. Like he was just so difficult. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories? bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. The episode you're about to hear was recorded with my friend Katie Kleber from the Fresh RN podcast. We were part of a pod crawl, which is a collaboration between several nursing podcasts to talk about the very important topic of delirium. This collaboration was with my friend Annie from the Up My Nursing Game podcast, Kaylee from the Awaken Walking ICU podcast, Tina from the Good Nurse, Bad Nurse podcast, Kevin from the Art of Emergency Nursing and How Not to Kill Your Patient podcast, and Matt and Peter from the Cup of Nurses podcast. So you can check out all of these podcast collaborations to hear about delirium from a variety of perspectives. In this episode, you're going to learn about delirium, what the ABCDF bundle is, and I hope you walk away with new tools in your tool belt to advocate to save your patient's brain from the long-term harmful effects of delirium. So without further ado, I want to drop you right into me and Katie's conversation. All right. So it's great to chat with you, Sarah. Yes, it's good to talk with you again. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to kick off by just like jumping into this really awesome story you've told me about delirium. Sure. Yeah, so I I started my career in the ER. We didn't talk much about delirium because they were critically ill and we intubated them and sent them to the ICU. And then I transferred to go work in the cardiac ICU and so, of course, I don't. I feel like I know nothing. So I'm like researching like crazy, like what's best for these patients? How do I manage them? And just trying to like fill myself with what I need to know to care for these people. And this was like 2011, 2012. So all the research was just starting to come out from Vanderbilt about delirium and its harmful effects. And so I was like, all right, if it's bad, then let's let's squash it. I'm ready. Let's do this. So I come into shift one day and they're like, all right, Sarah, you have room 25, but just until one o'clock, then we'll swap out for someone else. And I was like, what? <laughs> so yeah, the patient and the family, it's just too much. Like, you, no one can do this for 12 hours. So we've been just rotating. Everyone just takes a six hour shift because it's a lot. I was like, I'm pretty sure I can handle anything for 12 hours. That sounds like a lot of work. I had to get report a second time. Just give it to me for the whole shift. That's totally fine. They're like, okay. <laughs> so... 
I realized very quickly why they had been giving people just a six-hour shift with this patient because, man, what did I walk into? So I walk in to get report. The patient is holding onto the bed rails, like banging them, like, like push. The, you can't see what I'm doing in audio, but like pushing the bed rails, like rattling them, kicking his legs. He's intubated. He's like writhing in the bed with the tube. He's on several pressers. <laughs> He's on several vasopressors. pressers. And then there's these three sons in the room. You can just feel like palpable, the heightened anxiety and like anger and fear and just so much emotion happening in that room. And it's only 7 a.m. <laughs> so I was like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into? So I get a report from the nurse. Here's the story. This patient had come to the U.S. to visit his sons. He's from another country. He doesn't speak English. He's here for like a beach vacation in Florida, has a massive heart attack while on the beach. They take him to my hospital. They do open heart surgery. He has a hard time coming off pump. Lots of comorbidities. He gets sicker and sicker. Now he's in renal failure. They can't wean him off vasopressors. They can't wean him off the ventilator. They're trying to wake him up and like not keep him sedated because that's not helping him. But when you wake him up, then he is absolutely like immanageable. I mean, he's literally like holding onto the bed and like kicking his legs and like writhing, like gonna pull the tube out. But then we're an ICU that tries to not do restraints. We're like, how do we not restrain this guy? He's going to extubate himself. Like he was just so difficult. So to add to the language barrier, like it's hard to communicate with him and all of his physical comorbidities. We also have these three sons who are all doctors, all of them. Of course they are. Cardiac, <laughs> not cardiac doctors or ICU doctors. So they are very much, you know, concerned for their father. And so trying to gather information and somewhat micromanagey and very much condescending there hasn't been much good rapport with the nursing staff. It's just been a really difficult patient and family situation to manage. So here I come in. I'm just, I'm a little person for one. I'm only 5'3", and I'm a female. And the culture that they come from, there's definitely a little bit of a hierarchy, male and female. There's a language, but I'm just, there's a lot of barriers that I'm coming up against, right? Literally all of them. <laughs> I get a report and then I take over and then the sons just start grilling me with questions and what are you doing about this and this and this is wrong and pointing different things out that I need to adjust. And I finally just said, listen, guys, I recognize your expertise in your fields and I thank you for what you're doing and your specialty. But I'm just going to tell you from the get go, this, your dad, this is my specialty. I am a cardiac ICU nurse and what he has, I am trained to care for. And I can 100% assure you, I'm going to give the best care to him today, but we're going to have to learn to work together. And they're kind of like silent for a second. I said, let me go get my things together and I'll be right back. And when I said things together, what I meant was I had to go to the bathroom and take a break <laughs> mentally and prepare myself for this. Like, so, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just said, oh my gosh, whatever. Yes. So I go to the bathroom, like take a deep breath, say a little prayer, God, give me the grace and strength and boldness and wisdom to handle this patient and this family today. I kind of like collected myself, yeah. gathered a couple supplies and then entered back into the room again. And I said, listen, I see that your dad is very agitated right now. And I would be too, if I was came to the US for a vacation and wake up on a ventilator, I would be agitated too. And so rather than us trying to like me say to you and then you translate to him, this is a lot and you guys can't be here all the time. I need to figure out a way that I can communicate with him and I can build rapport with him as his nurse. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make signs together. <laughs> so we used to have this like communication board where patients could point to different words, but it's in English <laughs> and he doesn't speak English. 
And so I made another one with my rudimentary drawing skills. And I had the sons help me write out the words that were needed, like cold, hot, you know, reposition, all the things that you would talk with an ICU patient about, and then put it in his language. So I had them write it in, is actually Arabic, and then underneath it, write the pronunciation for me to try to read as best as I could with my white oh, girl yes. self. <laughs> and so we had a little communication board, and then I made signs, like big ones, like, you know, eight and a half by 11 sheets with the big word, and then on the back had the pronunciation. So I could, like, hold it up to him in case he was, you know, visually impaired and couldn't actually point. I could just, like, hold it up and he could say yes or no. Mm. So we made this whole communication process which they kind of like scoffed at me a little bit. But I was like, listen, I got to be able to communicate with your dad when you're not here. This is important to me. I want him to be able to stay off sedation because I know the harmful effects of sedation. So here's our window. So we- they scoffed a little bit at that? Like, yeah, well, I mean, we're doing, we're doing like arts and crafts together. So like, I, under- uh, <laughs> I understand yeah, why they're like, doing- okay, this little nurse is making her little signs. I'm like, listen, this is important, okay? So we got the whole signs made. I'm able to communicate with him. He's able to tell me that he doesn't want blankets. He only wants a sheet. He wants to be scooted up in the bed. He wants to go to this side. Like he's able to tell me what he needs and he kind of calms in the bed a little bit. So I keep him off sedation all day long. He also, I'm like making him exercise. Like we're like moving his legs and moving his arms. He's getting tired, wanting to fall asleep. And I'm like trying to get him to stay awake because I know how valuable it is to fix their circadian rhythm. So they're awake in the day and actually get good sleep at nighttime. So it was a shift, let me just tell you. But we get to the end of it. He's kind of like fills a like a rapport with me, he does choose to communicate with me rather than just like banging the side rails. And so we're able to get what he needs. We get to the end of the shift and then night shift comes on. It's the same nurse that had him the day before. And he's like, oh my God. All right, listen, we got to get him to sleep. I'm going to give him some sedation tonight. He'll get a good night's sleep tonight. I'm like, no, we actually don't want to sedate him because it doesn't give good sleep. Yeah, I promise you, I wore him out. He's going to sleep good tonight, hopefully. So just whatever you can do to like keep the lights dim and talk quietly. I think I've calmed the family down a little bit, so hopefully they won't be too much work for you. Let's let's let this guy sleep tonight to give him the best chance of like getting this sedation out of his system and kind of coming back to his baseline. So he kind of was like, all right, Sarah, I'll do my best, but you know how it goes. You know, I got, yes. I got stuff I got to do. Okay. So he has pretty good night's sleep. The next day I'm like, all right, we're going to take him outside today. And everyone's like, outside where, Sarah? He's attached to a ventilator and <laughs> he's critically ill with vasopressors. Like, where are you going to go with him? <laughs> so I was like, well, how about the helipad? It's sunny up there. It's a big open space. Like, no mm-hmm. one's going to be, like, interrupting us. So I had the sons call in his wife, who had also come for vacation. So she came in for our outside Florida vacation to the helipad. Yeah. And I had to coordinate with, like, the flight team and security and respiratory therapy like all these people had to coordinate together to take this patient outside but we do it it was such an ordeal we get up there we probably stayed for like 30 minutes it's not like a super long transport you know i have like oxygen that's going to run out right, i have a right. monitor that's going to run dry so i can't do this all day long but just for 30 minutes we'll spend on someone it was the sweetest thing he's like holding his wife's hand and looking around oh. and the sons were there but kind of like didn't know what to do with this moment yeah <laughs> anyways we're outside comes back he's exhausted it's kind of towards the end of the shift so he does get to sleep that night. And he sleeps, the nurse says, he sleeps really good that night. Oh, great. The next day I come back, he's even doing better. Like, able to, like, you know, hold his head up and communicate and point. Like, he's doing so, so good. And wait, any sedati- sedatives at all? Any meds? No sedation at all. So he's ventilated, but no sedatives at all. I know. It but- seems crazy, but <laughs> all the literature supports it. And so I was like, I read the literature. It says it works. Let's do it. <laughs> and clearly yeah. what we were doing before... 
keeping him sedated so he wouldn't pull the tube out was actually not helping him because now he's super confused and agitated. But I'm yeah. like seeing the the confusion agitation just kind of dwindle, almost like rinse out of a system as we gave oh. him time. Oh. All right. So day three, we got a whole, whole system. I'm weeding him off his vasopressors. We're changing the vent settings. He's getting better and better and better. I'm off for three days. I come back and it's extubation day. Like he has gotten so much better. He's ready to be extubated. I'm super excited. I love extubation day. But anyone who works in ICU know how challenging it can be because the patients, it can be scary, right? The tube comes out, doesn't go well. You're intubating again. And now you have to take several steps back. So we have to make the success. So I'm trying to explain to the patient, like, as soon as the tube comes out, I don't want you to talk. You can still use the communication board. I want you to rest your vocal cords for a little. So same stuff you usually do. Yeah. Anyways, two comes out immediately. He starts yelling in his in his native language, <laughs> and I'm like, "Is he okay? Like his sons are there? Is he okay? Does he? What does he? What does he need? What's he need? <laughs> and the sons are like, "Oh, dad!" And they're like yelling back at him. And it's just, it's so loud in the room. And I'm thinking, "What? What has happened? Like, what can I? How can I help this?" And they're like yelling back at him. And I said, "What is he saying? What can I do?" And they said, "Dad is yelling at us to empty our wallets and give you any cash that's in our wallet right now." <laughs> Like, yeah, he's saying, please pay this nurse very well. She's taking good care of me. Please give her your money. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, please tell him I don't want any additional money. For me, the biggest reward is to see him extubated, to see him doing well. That is more important than any money he can give me. But he insisted, no, no, give her money. I was like, no, actually, I can't. I can't take your money. We don't work on tips. So, um, no, thank you so much. But I, I don't need your money. Anyways, needless to say, he did really good. He was able to be downgraded to, like, the PCU. We got an IMC at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And it was just such, like, a beautiful moment. He was still very weak, so he couldn't walk on his own. But in the wheelchair, I'm, like, wheeling him to the PCU. His wife is next to him. The sons are next to me. And I was able to drop him off and be like, all right, you're getting better. Like, you get to go home to your family. It was awesome. And then another part that will always stick with me is after we got his dad settled, the son kind of pulled me in the hallway. And he's like, you know what, Sarah, I've been a doctor for a while. And I've always just kind of saw my role is to write the orders and your role is to do them. And I never really thought about all that nurses bring to the table to improve patient outcomes. It's not just what I order and you do it. It's like you have your own set of stuff that you're doing to help patients get better. And I would have never thought that some of your crazy ideas with this communication papers that we made and going up outside. I never thought that stuff would make a big difference, but that's when we saw my dad turn around. So I just want to let you know, you have changed my perspective of nursing forever. Thank you for giving such good care for my dad. I mean, that's huge. Wow. It was pretty huge. I know. I, I might have teared up a little bit. <laughs> oh, I would have been like, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so I feel like that story just kind of exemplifies how important our role is. It's not just like, do we know how to titrate the drips? Do we know how to manage the ventilator? But do we know ways to promote the patient's best outcome? Not like how to manage them after surgery, what to do about their wounds, what medication does what, but there's a lot of research that shows some of the little, like the softer things in nursing, like the the Florence Nightingale stuff, you know, (laughs) all that kind of stuff really makes a huge difference in the patient's outcome. And it's not just like, oh, this feels like the right thing to do. There's actually literature that supports it. And so it was cool to see the literature that I had read in the book, like if we cannot use benzos and if we can fix their circadian rhythms and if we can keep them up awake and if we can keep them moving during the day and help them rest at night, then they will have less chance of delirium. So I read that, but then to see it actually work with this patient, the one who was like super difficult, no one wanted to care for for a whole 12 hours, 
That's when I was like, okay, I'm all on board. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's do this ABCDEF bundle. I'm ready. <laughs> It's interesting to just like look at that story and let's say you were just going to coast as the nurse those shifts. Mm-hmm. You were just going to like, all right, he's a little agitated. Let me put on the propofol or let me do what I give me, give intermittent dosing of benzos or whatever. And then that night shift nurse snows him every night and we'll just, okay, now it's time to do a breathing trial. Oh, he's agitated, put him back under. And like that goes on five, six, seven extra days yeah. And then there's other, con- like, and how us as the bedside nurse, it's, yeah, you have orders, but it, you really have to, like, put those pieces together and take the initiative to do that for your patients. And that can make, like, life-changing differences for these patients. Like, imagine if he was in that ICU another week or two, unnecessarily intubated, with much more, like, long-term, like, maybe PTSD stuff or got sepsis or got a caudy or got whatever from just being in the bed longer. And, you know, with like, what is that, that thing where it's like every day on bed rest, it takes three days of physical therapy to like get over. Oh my gosh. And it's like, so yeah, like if he was in bed another three days, like how many more, what is that three weeks of like, or whatever it would be to just like recover from that. And how much power we have as that bedside nurse to take that initiative. And if we're lazy or if we're like, I don't want to do that, like, I mean, how much passive harm we can cause. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And if I if I think about if my grandpa had gone on vacation to another country, ended up in the ICU, you know, what I would have wanted for him and the kind of care I'd want his nurses to provide, I would hope it would be someone who was willing like I am to kind of think outside of the box and do what's needed to give or promote the best outcome for him. Yeah, because things like the uh, translation phone ain't working. Oh, don't get me started. That ain't going to work. Delirious patient in the um, ICU. <laughs> the translation <laughs> phone. <laughs> With Arabic, like, no. With an intimated patient, right. Yeah. So, okay, as, as a rapid response nurse, and just in general, an extremely experienced nurse who cares about education, what are some common mistakes that you see new nurses in particular make as it relates specifically to delirium. Yeah, so the ABCDEF bundle. Oh, define that real quick. Can you explain that very quickly for maybe a student or newer nurses yes, who are like, absolutely. what okay. is this? So it was originally written for like ICU patients because we know that without it, about 80% of patients in the ICU develop delirium. But the research shows that if we can implement these interventions, we can prevent delirium and even treat it if it develops. So here's what they are. A is for assess and manage pain. So like you can't put someone on the ventilator and just sedate them, but not do pain control. So pain control is superior than just knowing them with benzos. Yes. So assess yes. and manage pain. So make sure pain is managed very well. Next is B for both, like for breathing, really. Mm-hmm. So both uh, spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials. So every day, giving the patient a chance to fully wake up, giving a chance to breathe, not on their own, but like changing the ventilator settings to where they're doing more of the work than just the ventilator. And to kind of see how they do rather than just be like, oh, yeah, their oxygen level still kind of let's just keep them on the ventilator every day, give them a chance to do mm-hmm. well. And that does kind of strengthen their their lungs, their diaphragm. So A for assessment managed pain, B for both spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials. C is for choice of sedation and analgesia because the choice that you make is research has shown hugely impacts their outcome. So we always want to go to benzos 
because they don't affect like the blood pressure as much. But benzos are really harmful when it comes to potentiating delirium. So we try to avoid benzos, give more sedation, try something like dexmedetomidine or Presidex instead, mm -hmm. if as much possible. Now, of course, there's patients that are not candidates, right? You have like status epilepticus, they have to have benzos. Mm -hmm. But when at all possible, trying to avoid those uh, for patients. I just wanted to mention one thing about the, the meds that I thought was, that I didn't realize as I was like working in the ICU, I thought that sedation, they were sleeping, and it's not like we're like helping them sleep. And how Kaylee, who is amazing ICU nurse behind this whole delirium initiative, I had her on, our, on my podcast, and she talked mm -hmm. about how, what was it, like benzos are the least like sleep, and they're the most mm -hmm. disruptive of sleep. And the ones that resembled it most were like things like Presidex. But it still would be better to avoid the Presidex if you can. But like how your patient isn't actually resting. Like just because their eyes are, are closed doesn't mean... That they're getting good REM sleep, right? Right. And like how big of a difference that that choice is in those medications. And it's pretty enlightening. And then when you think about like the... Okay, there really are only a few, very few specific things that it's like really need propofol. Like, I mean, working in neuro, I did have those people who were seizing constantly and they were maxed out on all of these things and were still having terrible seizure activity. Like that's extreme, mm -hmm. but there's, that doesn't happen that often. Right. But your average like septic shock patient or post cardiac surgery patient doesn't necessarily need all that stuff. Right. So uh, D is for delirium assessment and management. So there are there's an assessment called the CAM ICU. Mm -hmm. I won't go into it, but basically there's a series of questions you ask your patient to determine if delirium is developing and how severe it is. So doing that every single shift. And then E is for early mobilization and exercise because we know that moving your body helps you get back to your baseline. So mm -hmm. the old dogma of like, oh, they're critically ill. They need to stay in bed and rest. Don't move them. They're, they need to be resting. That has been totally squashed with the research. We know that movement actually helps people. As much as you can move them, the better. Mm -hmm. Now, again, there's always exceptions to the rule. Some patients, they can't oxygenate because... Mm -hmm. They're so sick. And so you can't like increase their metabolic demand by moving them. So some patients, yes, you're not going to try to ambulate them, but you actually can move and ambulate patients who are on the ventilator. Yep. And if you listen to her podcast and look at her website, there's so many amazing stories and videos of these patients like with the tube in their mouth, walking down the hallway, waving at the staff. It is completely doable. So early mobilization as much as possible. And then the F is for family engagement. I think that's the the trick in our back pocket that we never use. There's mm -hmm. this whole culture in nursing that like, oh, the family visitors are so annoying and they take so much time, but no, put them to work. Yeah. Give them stuff to do. Like I actually tell families, what is your loved one like to watch on TV? Y'all going to watch it together. And I want you to talk to them about it. Like whatever it is, the conversation you would have, even if they can't talk back to you, engage them in what's happening here and now the daily news, what's happening in politics, what's happening in their favorite show, like talk yeah. with them, interact with them. I know it's hard to do when they can't talk back to you, but find some way to communicate, squeezing hands, blinking eyes, communication board, something where they're still engaging. Because as a nurse, we can do that some, but you can't sit there the entire time. You have other patients. So getting the family on board with helping. That's the ABCDEF bundle, yeah. <laughs> uh, which we can go into a lot more detail about each one. But Originally was meant for ICU, 
But I feel like all of those points are applicable for outside of the ICU as well. Family is still outside of the ICU because you can still give them something to do. You know, you can still promote early mobilization outside of the ICU. You can still promote good sleep cycles. You can still make sure that the sedation we're using or the things we're using to calm patients is not going to potentiate delirium. There's so much we can do. So I don't want you to hear that we're just talking to ICU nurses. We're talking to literally every nurse who cares for patients in the acute care setting. Delirium is a huge risk that will worsen your patient's long-term outcome and make it harder for you to care for them. It is difficult to care for a patient who's developed delirium. So let's like prevent it from ever happening and make everyone's lives easier and better if we can actually you know nip it in the butt early on. So yeah, because I mean, patients can get readmitted to the ICU. Like maybe they don't have delirium, maybe they develop it and delirium can cause them can cause them to come back. And it is, I like that point that you brought up about the family, because one thing that I found very often in all whole hospital, but mainly in the ICU, when their loved one, they're going through trauma, the family feels so helpless 99% of the time. And when we can give them something to do that makes them feel like they're part of this, because they are, yeah, it gives them more of a sense of, of control, which can let them relax a little bit. I mean, say completely relaxed, but like unclench is probably a better word where they can like, okay, I am part of this. I'm helping them get better. And then they can kind of chill out a little bit and do give you a little bit more space to do your job and build that trust. I read a thing where it said family engagement decreases rates of delirium by 88%. And it's like, I believe it. Do we have any pharmacological agent that does that? That has like... (laughs) Like if you just have a familiar voice near you intermittently saying, hey, you're here, I'm here, it's okay, I'm with you, you know what I mean? Like that's not a med you have to go get out and scan and administer. Like if if we want to frame it like that. You can be like working behind the scenes when you're not even in the room. Like they're like doing some work for you for your patient. Yeah, so I'll teach family like range of motion exercises and... They, once they learn it, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. We're going to get you. And I even say, yeah. this is how you get them walking out the door is by moving their legs in the bed. Mm-hmm. If you want them to be able to lift the spoon to their mouth, they got to start with small movements. I've never had a family member say, like, I'm not doing that. Every one of them's like, oh, really? I, mm-hmm. I can do I can. Yes, I'll help with that. Or uh, the incentive spirometer is another one I'll give them. Oh, yes. I'll teach them how the incentive spirometer works. I'll show them the little, like, numbers and give them goals. Mm-hmm. And it cracks me up. They'll be on the phone like, yeah, yeah. Yesterday, your dad, he was just blowing 1200 and today he's blowing 1500. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's they're so proud. And they and I think that they are waiting to be told this stuff. They don't know yeah. to ask to do this stuff. And we're the ones that have to take that initiative to like, it's like they want to sit there and do they a lot of them feel useless and feel like they're mm-hmm. a bother and taking up space. So if we can engage like take that initiative to engage with them it does make the whole situation better now granted there are occasional abusive people that are family members i'm not talking about those i'm talking about 99 percent of the other ones you know that that will engage and be a help us reach those goals and you'll have some family that are also still kind of stuck in the old mindset and they'll say things like oh you know like I don't want to bother him. I see he's napping. I'm like, no, no, it's two in the afternoon. It's not nap time. I want him actually awake and moving today so that he will sleep better tonight. So once you do some education and explain to them, actually research shows that when patients spend more time awake during the day, they sleep better at night. And when we can get their bodies moving earlier on, they don't lose muscle mass and they actually get discharged sooner. So let me teach you some things that you can do to help your loved one. Every one of them is always like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'll do that. 
are you sure? Because I feel like he just had belly surgery. He should be resting. Like, nope. Because he had belly surgery, we need him moving. He's going to get constipated. It's going to make it even worse. We got to get things moving. And so I'll even like call the family, my move team, like, all right, the move team's here. Like, come on in. That's a great idea. Um, and they're so happy to help with moving the patient's arms and legs and, you know, helping around. I mean, again, use your judgment. If the family does not seem competent to do this thing, or yeah. maybe they're making things worse in some way, or they're, you know, tinking with your equipment that they should not be, then do not engage them in that way. Right. But for the most part, families just want to be there and be helpful. And like you said, research shows they actually can make a huge difference. So absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So that's the ABCDF bundle. Yep. I'm sure like just like having awareness of that is something nurses need. Yes. Great. Yeah. Just having awareness of that. And then if you have that awareness, like, okay, there's things that I might be ordered to do ordered meaning like the doctor wrote the order not like you must do this but like you know the doctor ordered this or the patient doesn't want to get out of bed if if there's things that are kind of happening that i know are actually not good for my patient i would speak up and say something right if the doctor orders a medication they're allergic to i'm not going to just give it willy-nilly i'm going to say this is not good this is not going to help them so same things if the patient's like oh i don't i don't want to get up to the chair to eat i want to eat in the bed i'm too tired okay i could just be a pushover and go with that Or I could say, actually, it's been proven that eating meals in the bed is going to keep you in the bed for longer. And you want to walk out of here, right? You want to go home. I want you to go home too, because I know that's where you're going to feel more like yourself. So I need you to get up and eat in the chair. It seems like a minor thing, but there's something so valuable about moving your body and sitting up to eat promotes digestion. It gets your, your stomach going. It gets your legs stronger. Like we have to, every single meal, I have to get you up. And they'll look at you like, is she joking right now? Like, I just had surgery. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just compassionately firm and I lead with compassion because I care for you so much and I want you to do better. And I know that there's research that proves that if you move, you'll get better faster. Then I'm going to enforce this with you because I care so much about you. Now, if I take the approach of like, listen here, buddy, I'm the nurse and you're the patient. Get your butt out of bed. That doesn't usually go over very well. Mm-hmm. But if you lead with compassion and research, <laughs> I've never had a patient be like, no, I'm not doing it. Mm-hmm. Or if they did, I said, too bad. We're, get- <laughs> we're getting up anyways. Get the family on board. Maybe the family can help you know, persuade them to move around. But yeah, so just recognizing those things that might kind of just happen because that's the culture that I don't have to go along with the culture. I can say, mm-hmm. no, we're getting up to the to the chair to eat. Because patients will try. They yeah, will at, least, try. at least try. Even just the attempt is even has value, right? It mm-hmm. gives you information mm-hmm. and it helps move the body a little bit. Even the attempt is good. Yeah. And then as a rapid response nurse, one thing I see a lot is, so I'll go see a patient, have a rapid response. We stabilize them. Okay, we get them fluids and get their blood pressure better, whatever it is. And then I'll see a note like an hour later from PT or OT that says rap response called whatever deferred therapy today for rap response. I'm like, hold on. Why are we not walking the patient just because they had a rapid response? Like we fixed them. <laughs> we can still walk them mm-hmm. because we know that there's so much value or the patient declined physical therapy today. I'm like, no, 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 no. They don't get to decline it. <laughs> the patient needs to get, if they want to go home, they have to go with this intervention that's ordered, which is physical therapy. Mm-hmm. And so rather than just being, like you said, like I could just kind of go along with whatever. Oh, you don't want to eat in the chair. Oh, physical therapy is not going to work with you today because you had a rapid response. Oh, patient doesn't want to work with physical therapy. Uh-uh. I'm not putting up with any of that because just like I want to get the patient the medications they need, I also want to get the interventions that I know are going to promote them getting out of the hospital and be the most close to their baseline 
as whenever they came in the door. I don't want them to go home and have long-term effects with their brain where they just can't function or process because they were so delirious in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, I do think that we really, like, can super undervalue PT. Like, and very easily. I know, I'm sure I was guilty of that, where I was like, oh, that's fine. They don't want to. They're really tired. What a, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Maybe, maybe tomorrow. And it's like, well, if they're only in the hospital for four or five days, like, and you only do PT for two of those days, but you could have done them for five. As a nurse, it's very easy to like prioritize or given the hierarchy medications and very mm-hmm. like tangible things that we do. But the impact of something like PT can be just as effective or efficacious as those medications, if not more, depending upon what you're like looking at. Yeah. Like, yeah. so to, uh, there better be a darn good reason. And sometimes you have to advocate for it because I don't know about you, but I've had, I love physical therapists. I've had a few where it's like, oh, they don't, oh, okay. Oh, they had a little thing happen. Maybe we shouldn't do it today. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm like, I know you're, I bet you're very busy today, but I really, we need to do this, you know? Like, yeah. and, and just same thing with nurses. We can also like look for reasons to, oh, I just got to move that and I don't want, you know, or whatever it might be, like not allowing that to happen on either side kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Putting on like, you know, your broad shoulders and being okay with like standing up to push back because mm-hmm. you're doing it for your patient, right? Advocacy. And that's how we went to nursing school is to advocate. And nursing is not just the tasks that are assigned to you. Like, oh, I have to pass the meds. I have to document the things I did. A lot of the valuable stuff we do happens outside of the patient room. It's the phone call you make to the doctor to change at the medication that's ordered. It's the interaction in the hallway with PT to, you know, talk through like interdisciplinary collaboration. How can we help this patient move towards discharge? You know, it's like the reviewing of the labs to make sure that everything we're doing is appropriate for this patient. I mean, there's a lot that happens outside of physically being in the patient's room Mm -hmm. that helps them get better. And so valuing that aspect of our role, I think gives us more of like a why behind what we're doing. If I just, if I had to do a job, I had to show up, scan a medication and put it in someone's belly, that is just not That doesn't make you want to get out of bed every day. But if I'm like, man, I'm going to go and I'll be assigned these patients and I'm going to care for them and I'm going to use my brain, my skills, my heart to help move them towards a better state of health. That, yeah, you don't have to pay me. I'll do that for free. That's (laughs) that's awesome to get to be a part of someone's recovery, to make an impact on a patient for the rest of their life. I mean, what's just an ordinary day for me is for this patient, a huge deal. This is their open heart surgery. Like this is a big part of their life that they'll always remember. And so I want to make sure that what I'm doing is evidence-based and backed by the research and going to actually make a difference in it, not just like mundanely going to the task. Yeah. I mean, that that's going from a nurse who is like just getting through a shift to someone who's actually mm-hmm. making a difference in like you're becoming an asset of the team and actually making the unit and your patients better as opposed to just kind of existing there. Any other common mistakes for new nurses as it relates to delirium? I think that's the big ones. You know, encouraging PTOT, looking at the medications you're giving and try to minimize the the benzos and the sedation and try to promote like other non-pharmacological things to help the patient get what they need. And I get there's times where you have to give sedation, you know, for the patient's safety, for your own safety. I totally get that. But as much as possible, you know, weaning it off. And then just trying to promote sleep cycles, whatever you can do. You know, if you're the night shift team, you have things that you can do. Talking quietly, you know, keeping the lights dim when you're working, like trying to cluster your care. That's night shift's role. And then day shift's role is 
keep them moving. Like, you're a mom, so you know. When you have little kids, you're like, all right, nap time's coming at one o'clock. From now to one o'clock, we are moving. We're going to the park. We're sliding on the side. I'm chasing you around. Like, I am intentionally trying to wear my kid out <laughs> so that I know they're going to nap. <laughs> it sounds so bad. Yeah. But um, because I know they need a nap. And if they skip their nap, oh my gosh, then it's really rough. Same thing with your patients. <laughs> right. Same thing with your patients. I'm like, all right, so we have to do physical therapy, get them up to meals, keep them engaged, talk with them. They're watching TV. They're interacting with their family. Like, what can we do during the day to help keep them awake and use their bodies so tonight they can get good sleep? And it really is a collaboration between the day shift and the night shift crew. Yes. I could be lazy on day shift and let them sleep all day. And I could be, you know, haphazard on a night shift and turning lights on and being loud. And both of us are working against each other and making it harder for the other shift. So kind of knowing your role, day shift versus night shift, and talking about that, how can I help you? Even keeping them in tune, like they had a nap, you know, just from one o'clock to two o'clock, and then I kept them up the rest of the day for you. All those things we know make a difference in the patient's outcome. So how can we work together as a team? Now here, quick clarification or PSA. Now, just because a patient has a ventilator, does that mean they need to be sedated? <laughs> the answer is no. In Got fact, it. you can get in this vicious cycle. Like they have to be sedated because they're on the ventilator, but they have to be on the ventilator because there's sedation in their veins and they can't breathe on their own. But then they have to have sedation. Like, <laughs> no, turn off the sedation. Let's see how they do. And maybe they don't do good the first time. So let's just back off on the sedation a little bit and keep them safe. And like, try to wean off it as much as possible. You know, what can we do to strengthen their lungs, to improve their clarity so when they come off sedation, they can actually communicate, you know, like this patient. But no, that is definitely a misnomer that you have to be sedated if you're on the ventilator. Obviously, maybe initially, right, we might initially sedate them just to get the tube in safely. But then once they're settled and everything's strapped down in there, we can explain to the patients what's going on. And I've had, like, full conversations with patients with the marker board, you know, with mm -hmm. them like pointing at things. Like, it's actually really cool how well you can communicate with someone who is intubated. Now, granted, it takes a lot of patience on my part because maybe their handwriting is difficult. <laughs> but, you know, I've even had laughs sometimes where they draw something. I'm like, uh, and I, I say what I think it is. And they just kind of like start laughing like, no, 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 that's not what it is. <laughs> I think like a lot of us assume like that, that tube down your throat must be so uncomfortable that you need to have sedation. But I don't think really people, cause I've, I've personally never, I've never been in that situation. And I would argue most, probably nurse, most of us, you know, haven't actively been in that situation but like I remember one thing Kaylee said about how patients can deal with being uncomfortable with the tube and it's not the best it's also not the worst and they would rather a lot of them would rather deal with that than like the hallucinations and the very yeah. scary things that can come with the high benzo dose the propofol that can really like cause like she was talking about patients who would like have nightmares thinking their kids are abducted. And it's like, oh. I can deal with being uncomfortable. I can't deal with thinking my kids are being taken. Like I would much rather, and you hear these stories of these patients who have had delirium and have recovered and said, she explained one where, you know, you go do your temperature check and it was, you know, you click a little button and it checks the temperature and a patient was on propofol and he thought he was getting someone putting a gun to his head and clicking it and it every time. So it was like hourly, this patient oh. thought this around the clock 
but he was hallucinating because of the propofol. And it's like, patients, if those are the choices that people like have these terrifying hallucinations or uncomfortable with a tube and then having to get up and walk around and using a communication board, a lot of people are going to choose because they're not right. Sedation isn't sleep. They're not like Mm -hmm. comfortably resting. They're in some other alternative reality that's probably terrifying. And the most we can limit that, the best interest it is for our patients. I just, that stuff was just like, I can't believe that that's reality, but it is. And there's like thousands of stories that are just as heartbreaking as that one. I cared for a patient who said every time we would like put her back to sleep, Mm -hmm. uh, she was on ECMO, so she did have to be somewhat still, at least in the beginning stages. She would dream that she was in a room that was on fire and she was, she couldn't escape. Her body couldn't move and she couldn't escape. She actually, just for the record, she recovered and went home and she's done very, very well, but has a lot to share about what she remembered of of that time. And again, we were doing all the right things. Like there were times when we did have to keep her sedated because her, she was just so, so ill. But as soon as we could, we actually had her up and walking with the ECMO cannulas in her neck. Like it's totally doable. But yeah, to think that was her reality is that she's, you know, in a room and can't move and it's on fire and she can't leave and... And if you guys weren't being proactive and you weren't getting her up, if what if she was like and wasn't with a proactive team and was in bed mm-hmm. probably a lot longer and in that fire, room on fire for like much, much longer. And then that's what that how that equates to terrible long term outcomes that extend way beyond our this like slice of time that we see them in the ICU. Mm-hmm. And it's like just terrifying to think about like, oh where they could possibly be. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of things. I'm sure, you know, you've been a nurse almost as long as me. There's things that I was taught in nursing school are like old dogmas or cultures that as a new nurse, I was like, oh, okay, like that sounds good. But then literature comes out, you know, new studies happen and we learn, oh, no, no, we're not, we shouldn't do that. We don't give that drug anymore. No, babies should not sleep on their bellies. No, we should, like, there's, there's new research that comes out. So we learn what's best for our patients. So I would be selfish and be like, well, that's how I've always done it. Okay, cool. What research do you have to prove that that's the right way to do it? <laughs> so if research changes... Yeah, that's the way I was trained doesn't count. Yeah. If research changes, then I want to change with it. And unfortunately, you know, being a nurse educator, there's things that I've even taught because that's mm-hmm. what was taught to me. And that's what we did at the time as a, you know, healthcare as a whole, that now I'm saying, oh, so I know we used to do it this way, but now we know that that's actually harmful. Now it should be done this way. Mm-hmm. And so as a nurse, I want to always be humble enough to recognize that just because I was taught it that way, or just mm-hmm. because it used to be the right way, or just because it seemed to work for a long time, now we know this is not good. And so I think delirium is one of those things. When I first started cardiac ICU, everyone would call it ICU psychosis or pump head. Like, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, that it's got ICU psychosis. As if like, oh, yeah, it just happens. Well, but it does happen in 80% of the time, but we can actually prevent it with the ABCDF bundle, and then it will never happen. And isn't that better for everyone? For us, it's easier to manage a patient who's not delirious. And right. for the patient, they get out of the ICU sooner, get home to their family with all of their faculties. You know, they're not chronically confused, chronically having PTSD. I am open to doing whatever the research shows is best for my patients. And so if I'm speaking to new nurses, that's my message to you. You're probably learning things right now 
from your preceptor, from your nursing educators that maybe in the future could change. And so I think a good nurse, someone who's committed to lifelong learning, being open to like, oh, all right, well, let's change it. If this is what's proven and best for the patient, let's change it. And that's actually a sign of maturity. Sign of maturity, yes. Right. Being able to like, I'm presented with new evidence, evidence, therefore I am changing. I'm admitting, okay, I was doing the best I could with what I knew, but now I know different. It, that's like a sign of, not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of maturity and emotional intelligence to be able to adapt your practice to the evolving evidence. And that's what our goal is professionally and personally to like mature. And that's just a natural byproduct of that. If you're doing the exact, if you've been a nurse for 20, 30 years and you're still doing literally everything the exact same way, there's a problem. I mean, there are some tried and true things that yes, probably won't change, but like we are practiced by nature should adapt. Like it's a red flag if we've never changed anything, right? <laughs> well, do you have any, like, not necessarily just delirium, but any soapboxes for like new nurses? Like, <laughs> all right, y'all, this is rapid response nurse Sarah. And I'm just, I need to tell y'all X, Y, Z. Okay. What yeah. are my top ones? Because I have lots. <laughs> but I would say my first one, not my top, my first one is actually counting respiratory rate because <gasps> I can't tell you. How many times someone has called me and said, um, Sarah, my patient is legit breathing 40 times a minute. Like their stats are fine, but they're actually, they really are breathing fast. And that is our earliest indicator of decline. We get the lactic acid back and it's 10, <laughs> you know, like, so there's so much information you can gather from actually taking the time to mm -hmm. look at that chest rise and fall. We're not just getting a number like, okay, it's 16. No, we're looking at what is their worker breathing? Like how hard are they working to get that breath in? What is the pattern? Are there like big, long gaps? Are they taking little shallow breaths, big, deep breaths? Like are they doing the weird neuro breathing? I can gather so much information by actually looking at the chest and not just like out of habit, writing 14 or 16, whatever my favorite number is at the yep. moment. So yeah, that's my first one. Please take the time to count the respiratory rate. And I know you're short staffed. I know you have so many patients, but we're talking just a minute per patient like that. Mm -hmm. This is not eating up all of your time for your for your tours. If this is a small portion of your time. But I feel like as nurses, you know, we're the eyes and the ears for the rest of the interdisciplinary team. And so if we're not using our eyes and our ears to look for a decline in our patients, we're doing them a disservice. And as a nurse, how rewarding is it if you're the first one to discover your patient's decline? Oh, girl. And you're like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me speak up and say something. So, yeah, that's my big one actually counting respiratory rate. I go to wow. so many rapids and I look at the chart and it says respiratory rate 16, 16, 16, 16. And then I show up and I'm like, nope, that's a 46. <laughs> that didn't just happen like that. That's been building for a while, I'm sure. But just remembering that respiratory rate, it's not just telling us if they have a respiratory problem. It can right. also be telling us the patient's compensating for something mm -hmm. much more severe. You know, they're going to septic shock and they're acidotic and they're breathing faster to blow off CO2 to shift their pH or whatever they have, they perf their gut and their vital signs are still okay, but they're breathing faster to compensate. Like there's so many, I could go mm -hmm. forever, but respiratory rate is one of the first oh, indicators to climb. So let's actually take a minute, literally just a minute. Literally a minute. To look at it. You know, <laughs> that's I first how important that was too, like obviously at the bedside and a really, really an ICU. But once I also had my kids, 
And I was like, I'm trying to determine my level of urgency. Kids get colds and sick all the time. But I'm trying to determine my level of urgency here. And boy, that a real actual respiratory rate really can help you appropriately gauge and work of breathing and all that. An actual respiratory assessment can really help you intelligently gauge your level of urgency. And you are so right. If you are a brand new nurse and you're like, well, you know, their respiratory rate was this, it is this. I noticed they're using more accessory muscle use and increased work. You know, like being able to articulate that girl, you feel real fancy. (laughs) Yes. That's my first one. And then my second one I would say is to trust your intuition. Like I... I've gone to so many rapid responses where the nurse tells me, Sarah, I don't know what's wrong, but this is different. Like they're, they're not acting like they were this morning or like their eyes look different, like more glazed over or their, their belly. It's just bigger and like firmer or their breathing is just different. Their pattern has changed. Something tells me something's not right with my patient. And I'm like, Thank you for letting me know. You don't have to wait till you figured it out to speak up and say something. It's okay to say something when you just got that intuition. And I think that's the the biggest lesson I learned in my first year is how many times my intuition said something's up. And then sure enough, I was spot on. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know why they were going to crash, but I knew something was wrong. Find ways to like articulate that to people. And it's, it's hard, right? When the vital signs haven't started declining yet, but just your gut says something's up. Find people that you trust that can help you advocate. So at our hospital, it's the rapid response team. Nurses will call us and say, hey, Sarah, vital signs are still okay, but he's breathing weird. And I will I will come, I'll look at your patient, I'll help you figure out what could have happened or what diagnostics can we get from this patient to help figure out what's happening. But yeah, definitely trust that. So many times I kick myself in the butt for not saying something because I didn't have the data to support it. But I feel like that's like a... Like a God-given thing. If you're going to care for sick people, you now have intuition. <laughs> so trust it. And it will be better with, with experience and with more knowledge. Like it gets much more. And you can like discard like what my, maybe you thought this was a big deal. But as you get more experience, you're like, okay, I realize that. It's not like um, you get it and then there's no improve. Like it'll get better with time. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, so when I was new, I would look at the patient and be like, oh, that doesn't look okay. But now I know, oh, okay, pale plus cold plus diaphoretic equals bad. Now I know I need to start sounding the alarm when I see that. But when I was a new nurse, I was like, are they going to puke? Like, why do they look like that? Is this just how they always look? Like, do they need some sun? Like, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I'm new, right? But now I I can make that connection. Or I pull back the covers. I'm like, oh, my gosh, where this is splotchy. Now I'm like, um, okay, modeled legs, what is happening? What are they compensating for? Why are they shunting? So I, again, like you said, with more knowledge and more experience, my intuition is all the more heightened mm-hmm. and my confidence to advocate is also stronger because now I'm like, it feels wrong, but I know from experience, this is why it's wrong. <laughs> so I can like yes. put my shoulders back and say, I need you to come see this patient now because this is what I'm seeing, right? So I guess my message to new nurses is when you feel that, Either speak up yourself and say something, or if you're too, if you're worried that you're wrong, find someone who you trust to run it by and see what they think. Because sometimes, I don't know, you stared at it for long enough, you can't figure it out. But someone else fresh comes in with fresh set of eyes and like, oh, yeah, that's the whatever the thing is. Have you checked their calcium level or what's their potassium doing? And I mean, whatever. We're nursing's a team sport, so don't feel like you just have to like graduate nursing school, pass the NCLEX, now you're on your own. 
we need each other. We got to work together, not just like in emergencies, but also in preventing them. So, you know, reach out to your nurse bestie down the hallway, your charge nurse, your rapid response nurse, and find ways to help kind of fine tune your intuition and so that you can use it to take care for your patients. Beautiful. I love it. Any more? Those are good. Well, I don't know. This is going to be a really long podcast if I give you all of them. <laughs> I think I want to stick with that for now. <laughs> yeah, I, wa- I did want to cap off one with one thing that we've talked about, but I wanted mm-hmm. to I wanted to talk about it here briefly because I know we're mm-hmm. you know we're getting it's getting to be a long episode, but it's a great episode. We were talking about delirium. We're talking about like how negative like all of the keeping them sedated all the time, but there is this like online culture in nursing jokes and. Mm-hmm about how great it is when we have intubated, sedated patients and no visitors. And and I'm just curious, from your experienced nurse eyes, when you see nurses and students share that kind of stuff, how does that like come off to you? Like what's going on when you see that? So I see it on the internet because I'm, I'm on social media. And I'll even hear little inklings of nurses making comments here and there, like, oh, we got to snow them, or, oh, I just want to intubate a sedated patient, and I don't want to deal with the family, or, like, I, I hear that. And so when I hear that, I actually, my heart breaks, because I feel like, oh, you missed it. Like, you missed the whole point. The point is not to have an easy shift. The point's to make an impact, right? I didn't go to nursing because I was like, oh, this will be an easy job. <laughs> Heck no, this is not an easy job. And so the idea that we're like, I just want, you know, an easy patient with no family around, you miss it all together. You're missing the opportunity to make an impact in someone's life. And I feel like when nursing is rewarding, when you're giving of yourself and it's making a difference in someone else's life, that's how you don't burn out in nursing. The family doesn't burn you out, right? The patient who's awake and maybe a little difficult, that's not what, what burns you out. What burns you out is feeling like you're not making a difference. And so when I hear that from nurses, depending on the relationship I have with them, some people, they're too far gone. They can't hear any wisdom that I have to share or evidence-based research. They're just kind of stuck in their ways. But some people, especially newer nurses, they might kind of fall into that culture. And I'm like, hey, listen, before you adopt that mentality of all families annoying and I don't want to have to deal with patients who are awake and let's just know them, before you adopt that, let me show what the research shows and let me show you what you as a nurse can do to shift things around. Because from my experience, my shift is more rewarding when I worked my butt off to get the best outcome for the patient than whenever I got to sit on my butt all day and just kind of cruise. So I guess that's the message is like, what kind of nurse do you want to be? Do you want to just show up and get a paycheck? I'm sorry, that sucks for you. That is not going to be a rewarding career. And you're probably going to get tired of nursing and burn out and go to something else that's easy. But if you if you would like a career that you feel like you're making a big difference in other people's lives, nursing is that career. It can be. But it takes some intention and some dedication to do what's right for the patient. So so do it. Find ways to make it happen, even if you have obstacles. I feel like when I've started to see that at first, I thought years ago, like, oh, yeah, I, I understand wanting that. And now, especially when you hear those people who have been snowed talk about the nightmares that they have had while they were snowed. And I just think about what if you're a patient, because these, a lot of these things on social media are public. They're not on these private accounts. And even Mm -hmm. if they are, they're really private. Like imagine 
if you were in the ICU for a week or two and you were sedated and you thought your kids were being taken or you were in that fiery yeah. room and you see nurses posting and laughing about intentionally putting people there, like keeping people in that spot. And I mean that, that, uh, Ooh, right. Like I know you want to have an easy day at work and I, I think everyone can identify with that to a degree, but then especially with nursing and like, fields where you're like actively taking care of patients. It's almost like if you're a therapist, you know, you get your courage together to go see a therapist and then there's all these therapy memes about how annoying all their clients are when they share stuff. Right. There's like serious implications to that and can really damage our patients. And it, it does make me sad to see. And damage our representation as a profession as a whole, right? I mean, yeah. if I thought that all nurses were just annoyed by all patients, you're kind of like, well, I don't want you to care for me then. I don't want to be an, a nuisance or a bother. And um, I'm really proud to be a nurse. I want patients to know that they're safe with me. Like no matter, mm -hmm. you know, they're at a really hard place. I get that. I know you're not your best self right now. You just had surgery or you're, you know, critically ill. I know that's fine. I'm going to care for you the best I can with how much information that I have gathered over the years, you know, with my skills. Um, I don't want them to be afraid to come to the hospital for fear of, you know, judgment or, you know, nurses not wanting to even deal with them. That's, it's so damaging to the profession as a whole, to our culture. Yeah. And I think as new nurses, we can like jump into that kind of stuff. Cause we want to like, we're part of the nurse club and we want to be collegial with each other. And like, this is yeah. funny and it's something only us really understand. But I do think that there are implications and dangers to that, that it's difficult to appreciate when you're brand new. And I think that's really important that nurses consider it from the perspective you shared from like, what if you were the patient you know, mm -hmm. who was sedated and terrified for a week or two. And, you know, I do think that that's wisdom us experienced nurses can tell those brand newbies <laughs> to consider before sharing those kind of things online and joking about it and making, making light of it. So, well, thank you for your time. This has been of wonderful. Of course. This has been a great conversation. We should chat more. <laughs> yes. I mean, I've already told you I have multiple episodes I want to record with you. So. <laughs> yes, yes, <that's> good. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Sarah. And thank you, nurses. And stay fresh. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN. 